All right, friends, Zig starting off. Today on the show, we have Robert Kidney of the Numbers Band. Now, um, if you've noticed in the last few interviews when I've talked to some um, Ohio legends, every time the Numbers Band is brought up, there's a shift in the conversation, and it becomes serious and sincere. There is nothing but utmost respect for this guy. You can hear it with Chris Butler, uh, David Thomas, and Marky Ray. There's a shift in the conversation. And if you've ever listened to The Numbers Man, you know why. They've been around for 50 years now. They have a new album out called Endure. came out in 2020, and it kicks ass. The Numbers Band's unique blend of country eastern music is continued on this record and comes at you full force. Um, so I highly recommend you check out Endure. It's available on streaming platforms, as well as if you go to the Numbers Band website, you can get a copy of it there. There's also a documentary coming out. Out of Obscurity and Into Oblivion, a film about the numbers band by local filmmaker Jason Purfer, um, P-R-U-F-E-R, sorry if I said that wrong, Jason, but that should be coming out here in a few months. Um, it was supposed to be in the film festival, but because of COVID stuff got shifted, and it looks rad. When I was doing my research, I like came across that, and I read the date wrong, I'm like, oh, it's out, and started manically looking for it to find out that it hasn't come out yet. But that's something to watch out for. It looks sweet. If you haven't seen the trailer, check out the trailer. Um, but yeah, no, this was a super awesome conversation. It was truly epic. There's Holland Wolf piss stories. What the fuck? It doesn't get any cooler than that. Um, with this interview, I was kind of in awe in a way. I was just listening intensely, and um, there's there and like sometimes I find myself doing that a little bit too much, where I'm so enwrapped in what. Uh, whoever I'm talking to saying like when it comes time to like respond back or like, or they're looking at me like are you even listening and I'm like in it so there's there's moments in that where I'm like in this conversation just listening and <laughs> it's like is this interesting I'm like yeah yeah piss story of the hollow wolf is super interesting so <laughs> all right friends before we get into this uh um, episode this podcast is mixed by studio 44 Studio 44, if you have any audio, video, or stream needs, you can reach out to Sparrow at studio44cleveland at gmail.com or studio44cleveland on Facebook. They can make your stuff sound as good as this stuff. Also, if you can like, subscribe, rate, review the podcast and all the podcast platforms, it helps me keep talking to cool people and sharing those insights with you. And without further ado, we're going to have Robert Kidney Part 1. So let's let's jump into it. Let's kind of get up to uh, get up to where we're at now. Um, what? When did you get your first guitar? When did guitar become your mode of expression? Uh, I was in uh, sophomore in high school, and uh, I went to visit a friend of mine, and he could play his father's guitar. His father was a guitar player, and his father taught him. His father was a World War II-era veteran and played um, standards and stuff. So, like, big band stuff, swing? Well, I don't know. Just the way the guitar players played back then. uh, Full chords and, you know. Yeah, like... So he knew about chords, and he knew about a bunch of stuff, and I was sitting on... The bat across from him, and uh, he started playing his guitar. And the sound of the instrument came across the room 
and hit me in the chest. And when it hit me in the chest, I knew that I should play this instrument. And that's when I started learning to play. He lent me this guitar, and I started learning to play, and he showed me a little bit. But um, back in, in, in that era, which was about 63, there was this... Uh, it was actually the second big folk movement in the country. Uh, it included a lot of. They were, it was. It was uh, a lot more uh, controlled by the industry. So you had television shows called Hootenanny and Shindig, and you had the Kingston Trio, and you had the Christie Minstrels, and they were all these sort of uh, groups that were focused into a popular music vein doing sort of uh, pop and and uh, versions of folk songs okay yeah. the Kingston trio was the one that I, I probably focused most of my attention on and we him and I and another guy did a couple of live performances that were one of them was in a junior high school gymnasium. And I always enjoyed singing very much. I sang from when I was a child. And I blame the fact that I sing on my mother and my aunt and my uh, third grade music teacher. Uh, she made me the star of this German children's opera, uh, opera uh, very famous uh, Hansel and Gretel. So I, it, in my grade school, I was Hansel and sang Hansel in this children's opera. And of course, I didn't know anything about the dialogue. I didn't learn anything. All I did was know the songs. And this woman named, uh, we were such children, of course, and she gave me all my lines. Her name was Ruth Ann Case. And that, but I always loved singing. I loved singing in choirs. I did all of that type of thing, church choirs and all that. So these two things combined. And I was singing with him. He played the guitar. Guy, another guy sort of played bass. And I sang songs. But that, I mean, we were just horsing around. And, and But then I became very serious about the guitar. And he helped me find one. It was a classical guitar. My mother purchased it formed for me for my I think it was my 15th birthday and then I began to learn to play it very seriously and by then uh, there was the huge English thing and Bob Dylan and all this other stuff happening all of which I was influenced by including jazz but I was learning to play the guitar and focusing on songs that I could understand and of course, uh, Bob Dylan was the focus of that because he was he was uh, very popular then. And I had destroyed this classical guitar. I put metal strings on it. I bought a harmonica and a rack, and was was ruining and just destroyed the thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then my mother helped me pay for. Uh, a Gibson guitar with my paper route money. 
And that was my first instrument. And I was about 15 or 16. I still have it. It's sitting there behind me. Also an acoustic? It's right here. Yeah, was it also an acoustic guitar? It was all acoustic. Okay. Cool. Acoustic. Gotcha. And uh, then I began get very to get very serious. And uh, it's complicated. Uh, uh, very complicated. I learned to play the instrument uh, by... I bought a sing-along with the Kingston Trio album. Okay. And it had guitar chords... And you and the record, and they sang, and you could sing along, and you could play the guitar. Okay. But I I didn't really care for the record. But across the bottom of the record, the double record album LP, all the guitar chords were there. Yeah. All the guitar chords, the little the little diagrams, they were all across okay. the bottom of this album. And I began to play them, playing the formations. And I played them every day. I played along the formations over and over and over again until I could change them faster and faster. Then I began to play them the other way. I'd go one, and then I'd reverse them and go the other direction. Then I began to start in the middle, and then I began to do anything, any way I could and to keep the speed up and to keep the, the um, sort of improvisory approach to it so i was not doing the same thing every day right it's playing it's fun and and i did it for a very long time and in the, in, in the meantime i'm listening to the rolling stones and the beatles and uh, i began to understand hmm. some of the things that they were doing so i began learning rolling stone songs like uh it's all over now some of those wonderful things they did yeah so I'm combining folk music and rock and roll, and uh, and that's kind of where it went for a long, long time. I did I played folk music by myself for many, many years. Uh, uh, I I started playing in uh, places called Hullabaloo, where they have rock bands play top hits, and then I play on the breaks. Okay. And then I began to find the, these places that were called folk houses, and I began to play there, and I was developing the ability to perform. And then I started playing, uh, uh, I played at Lacave in Cleveland. You probably don't know Lacave, but I played there, and I opened for Janice Ian, okay. and I opened for Linda Ronstadt, and I opened for uh, the, some of these people you probably are not familiar with, or the... the uh, um, Jim Queskin Jug Band, and they were okay. all cool. these were these were touring acts yeah. at the time, and I just walked in and I'd play what I play uh, for free, just to play. Right. And uh, I remember Lon, uh, Linda Ronstadt watched my performance. She was uh, touring with the Stone Ponies. Okay. Wow. At the time, on a on a hit called Different Drum. Yeah. And she was very young, as was I, and she listened to my set, though. She very unusual. And came over and, and took me aside. She said, you know, I think that you're pretty good, but you, sh you, sh you should probably look at the audience once in a while. 
because I was very shy. And when I played, I sang into the microphone and just looked down. I set the microphone below my face and looked down at the stage and played. So I had, I was extremely shy, but I also had this passion to play. And then I joined working with the guy who played harmonica, and then we played a place over in Akron for years called The Birth. And uh, was this um was this with Gary Gary Hawk? How do you know him? Was it? I've done some research, my friend. Like um, but yes, Gary Hawk. Uh, okay. Gary Hawk uh, uh, came to see me. I, I played a place in Kent, Ohio, okay. across from the university called the Needle's Eye. Uh-huh. I believe it was called. And he came to see me there. And he was just there, and I performed. He wasn't there to see me. He was just, you know. And he really, really was impressed with my uh, performance. I had written a song called Powder Blues about heroin Hmm. and he asked me if I I was using heroin (laughs) and I said no I don't even drink and he said well it's certain the the song he thought I was a heroin addict yeah because of the the narrative was genuine felt genuine to him yeah. And we became friends, and he was a harmonica player, and at the time, he had been in a motorcycle accident, was using a crutch and a brace, and then we started playing this place called The Birth okay. in Akron, and, and we played there until I was uh, uh, forced to go into the armed services during the Vietnam War. Yeah. And I won't get into the story as to why, but I ended up in the Navy, and then I got out of the Navy, and it's all very complex, but I got out of the Navy with an undesirable discharge, an undesirable person. I knew that thing. So I came home, Damn. and when I came home from the service, are you interested in any of this? Yeah, no, I'm li- I'm listening. I'm listening. Like uh, it, it, with these with these uh, interviews I've been doing, it's it's I write out all these questions, and the, it, when the narrative happens or when someone, I I just tune in. So I'm listening, even though you can't see my face. I'm like, but like, no. Well, so, but anyway, when okay. I got home from the service, one of the first persons I went to visit, who had gotten a deferment for college was Gary Hawk. Okay. And he said that he had a band now, and it was called Pig Iron. And I said, oh, wow, that's really great. I'm really glad you got a great band. And they were all living in Wadsworth, and he was living in Wadsworth, Ohio, and the band was from Wadsworth. And he said, yeah, we're playing at the Akron Art Museum. And I said, well, I'll be there. When I came to the Akron Art Museum, uh, between then when I went to service and when I got out, the birth was closed by the Akron Police Department because they were selling drugs. People were selling drugs in the club. So the music scene had kind of 
dissolved and shifted what was left of it to the Akron Art Museum. And, and I think it was on Saturdays they'd have performances. And so I went to the performance and I took my guitar and between their shows I played. And everybody in the audience were people that used to see me at the birth mm. with Gary. Okay. So it comes back. And then this odd thing happened that I really don't, I never have gotten to the bottom of. At the end of the show, there was a side room, and I, and the bass player at the time, his name was Greg Colbert, asked me to come into the side room, and the band was there without Gary. Mm. And he said, "Hey, you're really good. Why don't you show up at a rehearsal, and we'll and and, and watch our band play? Why don't you show up? It'd be great. Maybe you could sit in or something." And I said, "Well, that sounds like a lot of fun." Yeah. Yeah, I'll do that. And I never really talked to Gary. I figured he was in the bathroom or something. I didn't right. Know. So I showed up. I drove all the way from where I lived in Silver Lake, Ohio. And I drove to Wadsworth, to this place, and I went down in the basement. And I was sitting there, and the band was kind of piddling around. And I said, where's Gary? And he goes, well, Gary quit tonight. <laughs> so... They're like, we need someone now. <laughs> Can you and, do it? Uh, he, had, he said he quit. He was moving to Kent. Huh. So I said, he said, so we jammed a while, and then, you know, they needed somebody to front the band, and I could sing, and I could play harmonica, and I played slide. I didn't have an electric guitar. Right. I had a guitar with a, with a pickup in it, but it certainly wasn't an electric guitar. So I fronted the band and put the band together, and I started mainly playing harmonica. Okay. And they didn't, I, I knew after, uh, well, this gets so fucking complicated. I mean, okay, so I knew from, I had been listening to the blues. Because I found the blues fascinating. Because, mainly because the guitar playing was like the Rubik's Cube. Hmm. These African American guitar players, like Lightning Hopkins and these right. people, and and Blind Lemon Jefferson and Robert Johnson and all these people, they were playing the guitar in such a way that I could not understand. There was no way I could fathom what they were doing. It was impossible. Well, they're doing okay. like six things at once. You got the bass line going, the slide guitar going. They're singing, like Delta and Blues. singing. Right. Let's not forget singing. Yeah. They were singing while they were playing. And, and uh, I became obsessed with it. How do they do this? I want to know. Right. How? When I was in the service in the Navy, I was stationed at Great Lakes, which is not, it's about an hour from Chicago. Okay. And I started going into Chicago when I had could get away, and I started going to the record stores because Chess Records Sorry. was in Chicago. So I collected the entire Chuck Berry, all the recordings he did on Chess. I started collecting everyone who had that I liked that was on Chess, and you could find the entire collection in record stores. Anyone you walked into, they were all loaded with Chess Records. You can find anything. And I also found some very rare albums, like Freddie King's Sings. Whoa. Freddie King was 
popular as an instrument as a as a guitar instrumentalist. Right. He did not sing at the time. And here I found this record. I found all these wonderful things, and I walk into a place one afternoon called the Jazz Record Mart. And I was looking around, and this guy who was about ten years older than me came over, and he said, "What are you looking for?" I'm looking in the blues, you know. And he goes, "I'm blah 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 blah." And he goes, "Well, I'm Bob Kester, and I own the store. And if you're interested in the blues, you know, why don't you come down here?" When you're in town, I close the store at uh, 6 o'clock on Saturday night, and I will take you into Chicago downtown, into the south side, and into the west side, and take you to the club so you can hear these gentlemen play. Nice. Whoa. Straight from the source. And Bob Kester, you see, was the owner and producer for Delmark Records. He owned Delmark Records. Okay. He still does own yeah. Delmark. He's still alive. And his he he made some very landmark famous blues records, one of which is probably one of the most famous modern blues records ever, and that was Junior Wells and Buddy Guy's Hoodoo Man Blues. Yeah. That was his record. Wow. He found them, put them together in the studio and made that album with them. Well, anyway, I started going in there when I was, and he would go around with me. Sometimes there was me and these two guys I hung out with. Maybe there was some other people. But most of the time, it was just me and him. And I'd meet him and say, so, so, who do you want to see? And I'd name somebody. And they go, you go, well, he's not in. He's on tour. But so-and-so's there. Easton Thompson. I said, well, great. Let's go see him. That's so cool. That's so... You know, I'd say, well, uh, uh, not, I may not be able, I'm elderly, so I may not be able to remember the names of everyone I saw, but one of the one of my favorite shows is I wanted to see J.B. Hutto. You probably don't know who he is. And J.B. Hutto is a slide guitar player. Okay. And although I've been in arguments about it, I believe George Thurgood based his sound on J.B. Hutto. That like dirty slide kind of mistake. Dirty, yes, extremely. If you listen to JB Hutto and you listen to what's his name, they're all good. Yeah, you can. So anyway, I went to this club and it was called the Jetstar Showdown. Okay, classy. And it, and it, huh? Sounds classy. That's all I said. And and it had a checkerboard linoleum floor that you could not see. Because it was orange and dark brown and filthy and used and worn out. And so I went in with it. And I'm standing there. And not much is going on. There's a bunch of people sitting around the bar. And there's guys playing pool. And I go, so where's the music in the back room? He goes, just be patient. Just be patient. And out of the back room comes a man short in stature and portly playing a mandolin. And singing. He just walked out of the back room and started singing into the room, playing mandolin and singing. And he was a very obscure player that not very many people knew about that I was very familiar with. I loved his music. He played blues, mandolin, and sang, and his name was Johnny Young. Okay. So I'm looking. I'm standing five feet from this guy 
who I absolutely love. And he's standing there. I can feel his breath, okay? And then he was done. And the guy's playing pool, stopped playing pool, and took a piece of plywood and put it on top of the pool table and brought out a set of drums. The guy climbed up on the pool table, got behind the set of drums, and out came J.B. Hutto, and the show started. And I said, J.B. Hutto. That was, that's one incident. Wow. It's so... And, hmm? that, that's so amazing. Like, when you walk into a space and you see it for what it is, it's a bar, but at the same time, with a board here and walking through the hall, it becomes, it becomes the show. It becomes everything. That, that, that being able to see the plane and witness the beauty come from out of something that's just plain is amazing and have a have this the, the tour guide of all tour guides for blues music what an incredible experience in chicago that's amazing uh yeah and i could tell you a couple of holland wolf stories yeah or we could move on no let's hear holland wolf okay um of course, I loved Holland Wolf. Uh, his music was really um, uh, um, personal. He was not playing. He did some shuffles, but he did a lot of other things. His guitar player... Uh, Hubert Sublin? Yeah. If you listen to Hubert Sumlin's guitar player, his guitar playing on the famous songs, it's cyclical. Yeah. It goes around in a circle. You know, that kind of thing. And it was just a lick. Yeah. No chord changes. Right. Which is all very rural. There's no chord changes. It's rural. Yeah. But they made it electric, and of course, Wolf played the same way. And that's what. But so that makes that that gives his music the sort of deep, uh, primitive, not primitive. Um, what is the word? Uh, primal thing. But a lot of the other blues did. The other blues was more stylistic. Now I'm not degrading the other right. style of blues. I'm pointing out to you the difference musically. So I had an opportunity. I said, uh, where is Howling Wolf playing? And he said, I can't go with you, but Howling Wolf is playing at his home club this weekend. It's called the Key Largo. So I took me and my two buddies, and we went to the Key Largo Club. And the Key Largo Club was a long bar, and then at the end of the long room there was a door, and then it opened up into this rather large club. Uh, I don't. I there were there was an elevated area with tables and this big stage and Howlin' Wolf was fucking playing. Mary Wolf. Yeah. And uh, so we listened to the show and it was remarkable. And then it was time to leave. And of course, back then I smoked a whole lot of reefer back then, and so I was very high, of course, and drinking and uh, sort of in another place. Yeah. And. My battery's going dead. Did I lose you? Nope, I'm here. Was it so we walked out of the place, and we were going to see a movie called Juliet of the Spirits by Federico Fellini, which I wanted to see very badly because at the time it was a really a break 
through because it was in color. Mm. And most of the Fellini films I had seen were in black and white. I was really interested in seeing it. I wanted to see it very badly. And we walked out of the club and I had enough money left in my pocket to pay to get into the movie. And we were heading out and we were very excited. And they got a little ahead of me and I was standing by, uh, kind of walking up the sidewalk by myself. And these five little boys came up to me and they asked me if I had a cigarette. So I reached inside the inside pocket of my father's uh, Air Force leather jacket, which I wore, because his name was the same as mine, and I pulled out my camels and I gave him a cigarette. But by the time I had done that, they, they dissolved, and there was a voice behind me, and he said, turn around. I turned around, and the guy put a gun under my ribcage. And I looked down, and it was like a homemade-type zip gun. Fuck. And he said, you better give me what you got. If you don't give me what you got, I'm going to let this off. And I looked at him and I said, well, you know, I only got about a, I only got a buck here. After that, all I got is change. I don't have a lot of money. And I wanted to see this movie called Julia the Spirits. My guys would pay for your admission. Why don't you come along? <laughs> And he put the gun under my gut, and he said, if you don't give me your money, I'm going to shoot you. And I said, don't you, he said, if you don't give me your money, I'm going to shoot you. Don't you think I, I would shoot you? Don't you think I'll shoot you? You think I'm fucking around? You think I won't shoot you? And I said, oh, no, I, I think you'll shoot me. Yeah. I think you're man enough to shoot me, and I think you're courageous enough to shoot me. I think you would shoot me, but this is a great movie, and you really ought to come along. You're welcome to come along if you want. Fuck. What? And he pushed back from me and looked into my eyes and he said, you're fucking crazy. You're a crazy fucker. And he turned around and walked away. And the little children that were with him followed him, came, reappeared like gypsies. Really? And they walked away up the street. And the, and, and the whole time all of this happened, there was an older man well-dressed older man with a hat on standing in a doorway and watch the entire thing happen and that's that incident is the story is the story behind the song thief okay on the jimmy bell record right that's, that's where i i based that story uh, uh, the song on that right. story Fuck, the other howling wolf story is this is also good yeah is i I went to a place called the LNA Lounge to see one of my favorites. His, his name was Magic Sam. Okay, nice. He was on Del Mar. Yeah. And I went to see him and talked to him and everything. And he, he was such a wonderful guy. He said, Why don't you come and see me? If I can remember. I'm playing at the. Uh, God damn it, this huge theater in Chicago. I can't think of the name of it. Big, giant theater, dance hall, back in the 30s type place. Yeah. Uh, Jefferson, I saw Jefferson Airplane there. He says, but I'm playing there with Howlin' Wolf on Friday night or Thursday night. Why don't you come down and so I walk in. Nice. The, 
something ballroom, not the. I can't think. I keep thinking the Agora ballroom, but that, it's a little close. It's something home. like that. It's not Agora. It's uh, anyway. So okay, this is a great story. Check this out. So I go in this big, empty fucking ballroom, and it had a balcony. It was round, and it had a balcony. It went all the way around the second floor full of loges and seating. The, the dance floor was immense. It was like an oval, circular-type thing. It had loges on the side so that people could have their own private uh, get-togethers and go out and step on the floor and dance. Aragon, the Aragon ballroom. Okay, okay. So... But there was no one in this place. The whole fucking place was empty. And it was like, and I was so fucking high, man. I mean, I just had a passion. And I'm walking, and I walk into this immense, empty theater that was from the 30s for, like, ballroom dancing and big bands. And there's this dance floor. And I'm walking across this dance floor, and I'm walking and walking and walking and walking. And I looked across at the stage, and there were some people around the stage watching a band play. And there probably was about 100 people there, maybe. And the band was playing, and I'm getting closer, and pretty soon I hear, da 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 Caravan. Right. And I went, they're playing fucking Caravan. <laughs> what kind of a show is this? That's, that's like Las Vegas. Right. What are they doing playing Caravan? And I walked up, to, by the time I got the now I'm up at the stage. And I'm looking at these guys, right? And they're older than me, quite a bit older than me. And they're dressed up, and there's a stand-up bass, and the guy's got a big jazz buff guitar, and uh, you know, uh, there's another uh, guitar player, and, and at the end, the guy comes up, and he says, give a big round of a hand, big, give a big round of applause to my son who played the drum solo on Caravan. And that was what the other thing was funny, I'm going, oh, this is fucking Caravan. This is Las Vegas, there's going to be a drum solo, and I'm coming close to the stage, and wham, there was a drum solo. Now I'm at the stage, now I'm looking at these guys, and he goes, give my son a big hand for his drum solo on Caravan. And I'm looking at this guy, he's charismatic, and he looks kind of familiar to me. Who the fuck is this? And he goes, now you're going to do, now we'll do something you're probably a little more familiar with. And he went, bam, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, rock. For it was fucking Bill Haley. No shit. No shit. That's crazy. It was Bill Haley. And I'm standing there watching Bill Haley play Rock Around the Clock. And the fucking bass player is riding his bass like a horse in the whole fucking thing, man. I saw the whole fucking thing. That's insane. All right? That guitar song. That guitar When they were done, when they were done, I went in the, the bathroom to take a piss. Okay, and I'm standing there pissing, and in comes Hollow Wolf. No shit. Okay, and he's taking a piss, and he's about two urinals away from me, and he's pissing, and I'm pissing, and we're both pissing. I was there <laughs> earlier, so I finished first. And as I walked by, I said so, and I knew that Hollow Wolf hated his new record, which was called Electric Wolf. Right. I knew he hated it, so I said, Wolf, how do you like your new record? <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> And he goes, it sounds like that shit. 
It's on that casket. When I went out on stage, I mean, out on the floor and turned around, and then, you know, uh, uh, Magic Sam came out and played, and then the wolf came out and played, and then I went home. That's amazing. And then I went back to the base, and then I went back to my barracks and <laughs> found the cockroaches. <laughs> that record, so it, it says on it that he doesn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> That's so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so cool right. but it's and when good. i went to the first another funny i got three piss stories you want to hear them? yeah all right the, the second was i went to the uh, blues festival the first ann arbor blues and jazz festival and uh wolf came on and he was plastered i mean there's pictures of him he was on a child's tricycle and he was <laughs> had his baseball hat on sideways and he was completely plastered and uh i went in the the restroom, the Porter John, but like a, it wasn't like a, I don't know, outdoor urinal, but it, it yeah. was big. And I'm in there pissing, and here comes Hubert Sumlin, and and uh, he's pissing. And this is after he got his teeth fixed, and he had these beautiful uh, teeth, these gold teeth, and he's pissing, and I'm pissing, and he starts talking to me, and I said, he said, fucking wolf, and fucking wolf this, and fucking wolf drunk, fucking fuck it, fuck it. He keeps singing the same verse. I said, yeah, 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 I know. I can, I can tell you're pissed at him. And he goes, I feel like quitting and walking. And then I went back. I watched the rest of the show. He was pissed. <laughs> the third piss story is, I was playing in this club that I played in for a long time down in Kent called The Cove. Okay. Before it burned and down? You can do some, I'm sure you've read about it. Right. Well, I'm in the. I, I walk in the men's room, which at one time was a hole in the floor because someone tore the toilet off the floor. But the urinal was still on the wall. I'm, I walk into the urinal, and there's this little guy with long hair, and he's small. And I'm standing there pissing, and he's pissing, and he. He looks at my cock and he goes, Blimey, mate, you'll never do a fucking thing with that. And I just looked at him and left. And I said, we'll see. That's great. And it was the drummer from uh, Pink Floyd. No shit. And because Pink Floyd was at the university. Yeah. That weekend. And I, they were probably done. So they came downtown, you know, to check that right. out. Well, that's where it was bumping. That's crazy. Piss that's my last awesome. piss story. <laughs> what? Your piss stories are awesome. <laughs> uh, I think. So anyway, uh, to get back to what we were talking about, uh, the, the Gary had left the band. Right. So full circle. And then uh, you said uh, blues was like a Rubik's cube. Huh? You said blues was like a Rubik's cube. You're trying to figure it out. Is yes. There, is there? Can you? Uh, the playing, the guitar playing. Okay. Not okay. the music. The guitar playing. The so, guitar playing. Gotcha. So through these, through this, the, your time in Chicago, did that, did the the algorithm, the figure out that cube start to make sense? Did the guitar playing from? No, scene? they did not play. They they did not play that way. Okay. Hubert, someone's uh, kind of got some picking like that, some kind of delta. No, no. The the, uh, the Chicago blues is an ensemble. Right. The guitar players uh, did not play 
classic uh, finger-picking right. blues. They didn't need to. Right. Okay. The only one that I ever, the only one you'll hear that really does, is uh, Muddy Waters. Okay. And um, Magic Sam somewhat, but if you go to see these guys, they were just playing raw shit. Right. You know, whatever, whatever cranked, they were cranking it. You know, and they had a style of blues that was based on. Well, you know, I, these these things, and I speak, and it's they are suppositions, okay? They are suppositions. They are not the truth. They are not historical. I am not a musical historian, okay? These are suppositions, right. and it is my suppo supposition comes from the word suppose. Okay. So, okay. Suppose, suppose right. the guitar players worked with piano players, and the piano players played stride guitar, or got piano, stride piano, which right. is sometimes called ragtime, but was it's, and it became stride, which means that you you move your hand like this from one part of the chord to another, you make a rhythm, and it's all based on two four time. So the guitar players use their thumb to do the left hand. And that's why you see these, all these guitar styles. Uh, if the cleanest is Mississippi uh, John Hurt, but they all played it. They all played this opposing thumb guitar style. And, you know, there's all kinds of different names for it and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But it was in 2 4 time, like New Orleans music. Right. One, two, one, two. One, two, one, two, one, two. All of a sudden, that became one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Don't out about it. One, two, three. Didn't have to constantly be doing this. Right. You know, and and that became boogie woogie piano. You know, boogie woogie, boogie woogie. Swing music. The swing era. All from 4-4 time. Well... If you listen to Robert Johnson, who's not the best example, but Jimmy Reed, any of them characters, they are playing the left-hand part on the guitar. You know, listen to any of them. Because my battery's going dead. I didn't think about that. But okay. I can hook it back up and, and, and we'll try some more in a uh, minute. If okay. it goes dead. So okay. don't worry about it. I'm, right. I'm having a good time. Likewise. I love to tell stories and I love to talk. So, you know, and so the the opposing thumb guitar playing style began to fade because guys were playing boogie woogie on the guitar, and that's where the Chicago blues okay. came from. Gotcha. Playing that, and Robert Johnson does it, but he also never quit playing on two four time at the same time. So his his style is very interesting because it's actually at times uh, uh, six four, which is all a lot of music gobbledygook that I right. don't believe in. But he's playing four four time and and two four time at the same time. Weird. Because what really... what he's doing with his hands, right. with his fingers, with his hand. And that's one of the things that he does that's so fascinating. And the other thing he does that a lot of people don't pick up on is he plays in triplets. 
So you get this and all that shit, okay, is piano playing. Right, right. Skip James, who nobody fucking remembers anymore, was a huge influence on Robert Johnson. He wrote 44 Blues, but he played the piano and the guitar. But he played the piano and the guitar, but his guitar style is a fucking mysterious. Yeah. It's absolutely mysterious. I never really figured I know a guy who can play it, the shit that he plays. Yeah. I never sat down and figured it out. But his piano playing, you will hear Robert Johnson in the piano playing. It's, it's so interesting how the, the styles and the how blues adapted to all these different instruments and it's melded together, right? And like how it moved up from the Delta and when a bigger band and ensemble was formed, how like those those the the one band one man band thing slims off and it comes those bassists are still there and like it's, it's just fascinating it's fascinating how well the thing about chicago is man this is a fucking city and the and the swing era was going on they're going to play that country shit right right you got they're not going to play that country I... shit that's fucking country music that's fucking hillbilly music we don't do that we do this shit right and it's electric and it's fucking incredible and it's loud and it's fucking edgy and it's that's what it is because we live in the city and it reflects the environment you see did you uh, did you cross paths with muddy no. no well i mean saw him a few times but no no okay because him and uh him and holland will fat it out for each other for a minute <laughs> Oh, I don't know if any of that's fucking true, man. They were selling records. Yeah. Why would Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters not like each other? What the fucking purpose of that? Right. I mean, they were they were not. They might have been competing. Right. For a record sale or some bullshit, but I think most of that stuff is bullshit. You don't want to get me started like the fucking like the thing that I I hate the most that fucking makes me the most angry is this thing about the crossroads. Right. And Robert Johnson and all of that crap. It's such fucking garbage. Absolute total garbage. You know? Yeah. The guy, you know, it's like Robert Johnson may have written songs with devil in it. He may have been advertising himself that way. Why? So the girls will be a little bit of afraid of him and make him more attractive. There was another country singer named Petey Wheatstraw. Yeah. Very famous, uh, not very famous guy, the devil's son-in-law. There were a lot of songs shit. about the devil yeah, and yeah. evil and, and all this shit. And it was all about getting people to come and see you play. Right. Well, that, okay. And manhood, mm-hmm. being yeah. a man, you know, and all of that shit, man, plays into it. But the crossroads, you know, it's like they, they tell this story about Robert Johnson like it's the fucking truth. Well, let me give you a, another version, Okay. Robert Johnson was probably a genius. He was not a stupid man, and he was not particularly uneducated. He could read. He could do a lot of things that nobody knows about, and they don't think about it like that, because he was this old black guy from the South, blah, 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 racism, crap, bullshit. Okay? Well, what if Robert Johnson either heard or read the story of Faust? Mm. Go look it up. The story of Faust was, I believe, was written in the early or late 1700s. And what's it about? It's about a guy who goes to the crossroads and sells his soul to the devil. Okay, so making his own mythos. 
And like it's and, and it is also a European and Southern myth. It has nothing to do with going to a fucking crossroads right. and meeting with the devil. It's total bullshit. And if you and 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 you know, I think why well, you know Robert Lockwood knew that. Right. He knew it was fucking bullshit. And he didn't. <laughs> Was it, well, but there's still these fucking blogs and, and crap that I run over in blues magazines and, and shit. And they're all still talking about what a crock of shit. Right. Robert Johnson went to Sunhouse and Howlin' Wolf and some of those players and they said, hey, let me sit in. And they said, you can't fucking play, kid. Right. Just like if you went on a construction site with your hammer and said, I need a job. Can you let me play work with you? And they say, you don't what the fuck you're doing, kid. Go away. Right. Until you learn a fucking trade. Don't come in and take advantage of the fact that we have got these people here seeing us and you want to right. come up and show everybody your dick. Get the fuck off the floor. Right, right. And he went away and he learned to play. You didn't go fucking to a crossroads and have the devil. He went and busted his ass. Right. Studied and played and fucking worked and got fucking good. And he was really fucking smart. Really smart. And he wrote these marvelous songs and played this marvelous guitar style. He didn't buy it with his soul. What a crock of shit. They give nobody credit right. for what they did. I agree. Okay. I agree with that 100%. It's it's interesting the legend that gets print and the, the what's the not appealing version. You know what? I'm gonna call you back. Okay, are we done? Can I do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Ask me what you're going. What you oh, want to ask okay. me? I'm gonna finish that thought. Um, it's interesting that like so the un pretty version, the unexciting tale that this guy wanted to go play was told no. So he went and practiced a bunch, got really good, and then got notoriety from all his hard work. Compared well, to the fuck, here's the fucking story, all right? I'm a construction worker. I was raised in the fucking union. My father sent me out to pour concrete when I was 17 years old. Yeah. And and if you if you want to if you want to take part in a trade, you will take shit for it. Right. Oh, you're not going to make it, kid. You don't know what the fuck you're doing. You're costing us time. Hurry up. Right. And that's all those guys did to him. They let him know, don't fucking come in here and do this. Yeah. Know what the fuck you're doing. Come back here. Earn it. Right. That's what it's about. It's about, uh, you know, the real American values right. of hard work and labor and earning what you get. Yeah. A hundred percent. Okay. That's yeah. No, I agree with that. Well, I got I got to let go right. and I will call you back. Okay. Cool. All right. I'm good. So where were we? Okay. So anyway, this fucking guy quit. He quit the band and I took over the band. Right. Um, so, uh, the blues fell this morning inspired the, the name, right? Of the numbers band. Not exactly. Okay. Well, let's dive into that. So I was, fa I'm kind of fascinated by the idea that, um, guitar playing is this, uh, this Ruby, this, this thing to solve, right? And the, the numeric equivalence to like the numbers band, like, so where, where does that come from? Well, okay. I read books. I, I was never good in school. I got fired from high school. 
And are you there? Yep. Yep. Sorry, I'm listening. Uh, I'm not. Re- I I can't look on the phone anymore. Oh, okay, that's all good. Um, here, let me. It, it sounds okay. Yeah. No, it sounds okay. I'm all right. Ask. So anyway, so you were asking me. So one of the books I read was "The Blues Fell This Morning" by Paul Oliver. Paul Oliver was an English musicologist. He wrote a lot of books about African-American music. Right. And this particular book is a book that focused on the themes of the blues. What were they writing about? And there's different chapters. There's chapters that are related to different things, like songs about floods, songs about sterno, gambling, you know, all of that stuff. Well, there's one chapter that's about... um, uh, gambling and uh, the occult and that type of stuff. It's been a long time, so I'm uh, I'm 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 kind of like guessing some right. of this stuff, but I but I believe that's what was in the the it was it was a focus on on uh, the occult, um, which is actually a, an exaggeration of what it actually was and. Right. They they weren't like sitting in circles uh, worshiping a skull. They were just using charms and things like that to get people to fall in love with them and all this stuff. But but uh, the the Vietnam War when I put the band together and 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 the protests were at their height. I put the band together in the summer. I believe, of 1969. By the next year, four students were killed on Kent State campus. Right. So what it was like to live in Kent and in the surrounding area, it was very sort of a uh, sort of a uh, on, on, on the level of someone who's in their 20s, it was like uh, like a fascist state. You had Nixon in the White House, which I always thought was great. The thing about Nixon was so interesting that there there was an X in the middle of his name. Hmm. And if you split his name and said, Nick's on. Uh, okay. And so that's, you know, I was smoking a lot of pot. And it wasn't like QAnon, but it was right. out there. Right. But it was also accurate. That's just the way I think. So when I came, when, so when Gary quit, and I and I said, well, I'll take over the band and I'll front the band for you guys, but you're going to have to, you know, I understand how this music is played, and I understand how to make it. So you're going to have to let me sort of work this, and if you don't, then I, it's not going to work out. Right. And so. The drum, the first drummer quit within uh, three rehearsals. He he couldn't stand me, but in a while he came back and he worked with. He was the original drummer in the band. Okay. So anyway, we're working. We're working in this guy's basement. But in the meantime, I'm thinking, well, when this band comes out, it's going to have to have a name. So I started thinking of names, and uh, you know all these names, and they was all sounded like local bands to me. So I was not happy with where I was going with this name thing. Right. 
And then I started getting deeper into it and was thinking a lot deeper about it. And I thought, of, well, what about numbers? No one's ever used numbers in a band before. It would be completely unique. No one's ever done it. Numbers for a name, which is Orwellian, and it's very Orwellian in this time in which I live. Right. And it will be a warning when they see the name of the band that things are moving in a direction that are not good. Okay? That's what made me decide to use numbers. Gotcha. <laughs> so, okay. No, because it makes so sense. Then, then I said, the next question you ask yourself is, what numbers? Right. And then I remembered the Blues Fell This Morning, and there was a chapter in the Blues for, uh, Fell This Morning about the numbers racket and how the numbers racket was based on, I believe it was, um, again, I, I'm, I haven't read this in a long time, the last three numbers of the uh, Dow Jones. Okay, so yeah. whatever the last three numbers of the Dow Jones was, that was the winner. So these people that were betting on the numbers, all of those, all of these different people, they began to come up with theories as to how you could pick the winning number, and and, and it sort of like played into numerology, mm. right? Right. Uh, and out of that came this thing called a dream book. Okay. And a dream book is if you dream about your mother-in-law, when you wake up in the morning, you look up mother-in-law in the dream book and you bet that number. Gotcha. Oh, okay. Okay. So you're getting you're getting a message from the beyond right. as to what your number ought to be. Okay. Right. Not that far-fetched. Yeah. But I mean, it's far-fetched. But yeah, I mean, I there's, there's there's a rationale to it. It's like the, and, the Freudian dream thing. Or horses, or you could be in those all kinds of, you know. And uh, so I'm looking through these numbers, and some of the numbers, people would bet the numbers, and they, they were popular for, for various reasons. And uh, one of the numbers uh, that I read was three, six, and nine, which was the three sixty ninth infantry, which was the with the African American, I believe, uh, African American uh, infantry unit in World War One. It was the high, most highly decorated infantry unit in World War One, or something. I, now I, I could be talking out of my ass a little bit, but you're asking me to remember something <laughs> I read when I was twenty three years old. That's pretty good, All right? That's pretty good to remember this much. <laughs> and and. One of the numbers was 156075. Okay. Okay. And that number represented a phallus. Okay. Okay. So if you dreamed about a, if you dreamed about a big dick, <laughs> that was the number that you picked. So you're going to have to forgive me, all right? I was, I was a little seedy when I was a young man, and I thought it was hilarious that my in my private knowledge, when I saw the name of the band up there, it wouldn't be 156075, it would be Big Dick, which would never be on a marquee never. anywhere. Awesome. Maybe not even now. Maybe now. Certainly not in 1970. Right. So it was a big inside joke. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. That's like so I was talking with um Chris Butler um a couple weeks ago 
Actually, I think it was uh, it was in it was in December, and he. Uh, well, I wasn't finished, so you're okay. probably going to tell me what I was going to tell you. No, no, keep going, keep going. I won't cut you off. <laughs> I'll finish this up. So, the band was out. Fifteen sixty seventy five was the name of the band, and we were playing. And I, I, I'll, I won't. I'll cut the story short. When Terry Hine came in the band, uh, he started playing with us. He well, Terry Hine is a puzzle freak. Yeah. He loves puzzles, and he's also very versed in music theory. And one night after a show, he came up. He said, "Do you know what fifteen sixty seventy five means?" And I kind of laughed, and I said, <laughs> "What does it mean?" And he went, "Fifteen into fifteen is one. Fifteen into sixty is four, and fifteen into seventy five is five. One four five. That's yeah, a blues, blues. progression." Uh, but it's not only a blues progression, it is called the universal progression because it's used in Spanish music, country music, it's a one, four, five progression. And I was really kind of weirded out by that because all we were playing was blues. Right. But what's the connection between that and a big dick? You, you, I mean, it was like, you know, it was like QAnon bullshit. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. No, that's amazing. only 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 it was wasn't QAnon bullshit because it was true, right? And still undefinable and still very very mysterious. That's amazing. It's it's crazy how like uh, something that's just a joke can be so meaningful. How behind like um, a comedic thing is a, a deeper, more like a more a, more thought out reason that you don't realize until someone points it out um so you terry um how do i want to put this janice joplin brought brought terry to you what? <laughs> that's a bit out, that's outside that's outside no i read that you no. guys met at a at a, a joplin concert or you were there and someone yeah, yeah well my girlfriend brought terry to me okay okay so it wasn't her name was her name was madeline miller and okay. she went to high school she went to high school with Chrissy Hind and knew Terry. Okay. And we're sitting there watching Janice Joplin. She says, you see that guy over there on the blanket? And I said, yeah. I said, you ought to put him in her band. He's a really good saxophone player. So I got up and walked across over to the blanket. And I looked down at this guy. I didn't know. I said, hey, man, you played the saxophone. Is that true? And he goes, yeah. And I said, well, I got a band. You want to play? And he said, well, I said, what are you doing? You want to play in a band with me and yeah. uh, get to play? I said, yeah. And that was the end of it. At that point, when did like um, when did the repertoire start to build into oh, um, like original tunes, or did you guys just start writing your own songs? That's an, that's another story. But what were you going to ask me about, Chris Butler? Oh no, I was just going to point out. Me, I was talking to him, and um, we were because uh, I know he played with you guys for a bit, and I was asking him what the name because I was asking him where the name came from, and like. Uh, he, uh, he didn't say it meant big dick, but he was telling me of uh, um, Terry's uh, um, breakdown of it, but he didn't have the math right. So he's like, somehow it equates to a, a one four five, and I'm like, yeah, that, yeah, but that's amazing, and that's so fitting in a way. Um, of course, of course, it has to be that deep and well thought out. <laughs> um, well, it isn't. It I isn't. know, which is amazing. No, I'm just the guy. You know what I'm saying? I'm just the guy who does that shit. I've done it my whole life. It's just shit just happens like that. It's just part of the way it is. But I mean, uh, what were we talking about? Okay, so that was Chris Butler's thing. Okay, right. so when we were talking about Terry, 
So then when did Oh, it, you want you wanted to know when the original material started. Right, cuz when you're doing your folk uh like your acoustic solo act, the original tunes like you said you wrote the one um that you met Gary with had to start forming, right? And like when did it adapt to fit the numbers band at this time? When did like uh, was it always Well, the that's a long story. So here let me tell you what the story is, All okay? Right. I'm a folk music singer that's what i do that's what i was on my part i am a part of the american folk music tradition that's what i am and in that tradition you learn music and songs but you are it is part of that tradition for you to make a contribution to the tradition so you write your own songs right that's like a responsibility. I see it as a responsibility. So I always wrote my own songs. The first songs I wrote was I was in the Navy, and I wrote a song called Stolen Cadillac. Mm. And that was my first song, and I was always writing. But it was mainly uh, Stolen Cadillac, the blues song. You know, It's based on Black Cadillac Blues, I think, by uh, Lightning Hopkins. Nice. It's like a Lightning Hopkins song, really. Uh, but most of the songs and the ins- and things that I did write were all, um, you know, derivative of blues. And I was living with this woman at the time. Her name was uh, Kanusha. Her nickname was her, her her American name was Constance, and she called herself Connie Red. God started started bugging me and asking me when I was going to start writing my own music because I had told her what I told her about folk music and so on right. and so forth. And she said, and she was an artist herself. She was a painter, and she said, you know, she was sort of like in my shit about it. You know, right. when are you going, when are you start doing something that belongs to you, you know, right. And but you know, at the time, I had no confidence in myself at all, and it was very difficult and a big thing for me to think about writing something that was original. But the more I became uh, obsessed with it, the more I got into it. The deeper I got into it, the more I realized that that I should do that, and that it was proper for me to do that. I shouldn't be playing. Uh, music uh, from the African American community, and living my life doing that, because it is you know it isn't my music, and 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 I felt even at the age of twenty two or twenty three that I really needed to make a contribution. That was my folk voice speaking to me. You need to make a contribution to this music. You need to do the effort. You need to put the work in. So I began to do it. And I began to think, well, not only am I going to write my own songs, I'm going to I'm going to fucking create a whole style of music that's completely unique, and it's going to be individually completely unique. And and so I began to write music as well as lyrics that had to do with trying my hardest to find something that was unique, right. distinct. Not you know you can do things that are unique, but I wanted it to be distinct, separate from everything else, and unique. So it was quite an undertaking, and right. that's where the original that's where the original 
impetus for the new songs came from doing it. Yeah. No easy feat with that with that level of a responsibility you're putting on your shoulders to come up with not only com- original music but completely original arrangement and sound and a new. But anyway, um, so well, I can tell you how I can tell you how it broke down. Yeah. Okay, I took Chuck Berry rhythms and reversed them. Do you know how to play the guitar? Do you play the yep. guitar? Yep, yep. All right, so you play a Chuck Berry rhythm. Do you know how to play a Chuck Berry rhythm? Right, like. Okay, so if you want to if you want to understand what I did, you take a Chuck Berry rhythm. You okay. count the beat. You count the beat, and you start where you, we know how you when you go up and you lift your finger up. Right. To make the second part of the part. Right. That 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 kind of thing. Yep. You start there and go backwards. Uh, 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 okay. Okay. You'll you'll have to try it and you'll figure it out. Well, I wrote songs where that was happening. That was the guitar part. It was right. backwards, and um, we put the snare beat on one and three rather than on two and four. So the drummer mm. that I was working with had to learn how to play the drums backwards. That's. Was it, that's almost like a funk thing when you put an emphasis on the one. Well, okay. it's a long story. Right. It's a, not too long, but uh, I had to fire a drummer, and uh, this a guy that was a very close friend of mine was living in an apartment, and uh, and uh, I'd known him since before he even had a band. We were very good friends, and I heard that he had. He was a artist and a musician, and I heard he had a set of drums, so I called him on the phone. I said, hey, man, I just fired my drummer. We got about a week. Do you still have your drum kit? And he said, yeah. I said, well, bring it down. and let's, If you want, I'll, I'll hire you and put you in the band. He said, I don't know how to play the drums in public. I said, don't worry about that. Nobody's going to fucking know. Just don't right. stop. So he came down and brought his drums down and became the drummer in the band, and his name was Jerry Casale. Right. So... So one night we were playing a song and he did a fill and he came out backwards and was playing the snare on the one and three. And I'm listening to the one and three. And when it started happening, the whole fucking room shifted. It was this huge thing. It was like there was an earthquake because the whole shift of the focus of the entire music was different. And it was more, it was more earthen. And it had this strange thing about it. And he came up because, you know, I'm really sorry I fucked up that. I said, no, I'm going to use that. And I've used it the rest of my life. A mistake. Damn. That's the beauty of the mistake. It's either if, if, uh, if coincidence is a life whispering, a mistake would be life shouting, right? And like that's. Well, the thing about this is this. My, my philosophy on all this bullshit, and I, and I call it bullshit, is that you were born and raised in America. You went to American schools. Right. And they teach you the fear of error. That is what you were taught. That's the basic thing you learn fear of error. And it interrupts your life for your entire life. Mm-hmm. But error as it's defined by your school, is actually where life exists. So if you're afraid to make a mistake, you'll never be creative. Right. And that and that fear and on whatever happened, whatever depth that affects you, affects how you d- create. Hundred percent. And 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 
one in three is not an error. There's very few things in our lives that are mistakes and errors, like you're coloring outside the lines, you get an F, these kinds of things. I mean, shooting someone is an error. Right. Okay? Definitely. Driving on the wrong side of the highway is an error. Right. Okay? Writing Writing a song... And you're standing on stage and you play a chord, it's not an error. It's part of the performance. Because the performance is how you deal with that. The real performance is how do you deal with these things that you do because you're because you lose your concentration. Yeah. It's not an error. It's not a mistake. It's an opportunity. Well said. Well said. And I agree 100%. I think a lot of, uh, at least a lot of the kids I work with, you see a fear of being wrong, like a, a manic fear of being wrong occasionally, like until, the, until it becomes right. And so much of that mistake leads to life-changing things. And that, that's, I think, what, how you phrased that was really well said. Um, it's, it's a negative thing, though. Remember, right. it's a negative thing. Teaching children about putting children in boxes is a mistake, a real mistake. Teaching them about boxes and having them understand boxes is fine. Right. But requiring, but requiring them to be in the box is a mistake. They need to understand. It's like I can't number the musicians and artists I've worked with that, We'll be doing something together, and you know we're in collaboration. And I go, well, why don't you try this? Oh, I don't think that'll work. I said, we haven't done it yet. How right. do you fucking know? <laughs> There's only one way to, and that's the it. only only way to do it is to do it. That's the only per- the only way. And you know, and if you approach it like it's going to be a mistake, you're not giving it any breathing room to be what it is. You don't even see it for what it is. And 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 the one and three beat that. Jerry Casale played, changed the band right. with it, with what he thought was a mistake. I just took it and went, this is fucking cool. I'm going to use it. And the musicians that I worked with berated me. It sounds like a choo-choo train. It sounds like Indians. The snare drum goes on two and four. And I said, not anymore. Because I said, it doesn't. And if you want to be in this band, you're going to fucking play it like that. That's it. And that's why people hated me, you know. Well, to be like to have a vision of something and not the in the to have a direction. Someone's always going to butt heads with someone who has a direction when they feel like they don't. But um, on aside from that, so I th- I agree a hundred percent with what you said. Like I think that, but but so I don't. I'm losing my train of thought now. <laughs> but how did... Okay, so now that these tunes are, like, formed and you're taking these patterns and you're flipping them around and you're putting... You're shifting beats and making your own... The Numbers Band's becoming its own unique blend of music. When does, right. When do you guys start really shedding to that Bob Marley gig? Because that's when you guys recorded Jimmy Bell's Still in Town. And... Oh, it was about... It took about... Um... A good year or more to learn these songs and perfect them. And, you know, it wasn't just 
my guitar parts. It was the rhythms that the drums played and what the bass did. I rewrote. I had these things. All, every part had to be unique, and they all had to understand what I wanted. Right. And then I said, this is what I want. Play it. And then you own it. Do not play what I'm telling you to play. You are the drummer. You are the bass player. But I listened to jazz, and so did Terry, and so did my brother, yeah. and so did Tim Maglion. So when it came to horn parts, I, I, I started putting horn parts together, and they sounded like shit, and they were stock, and I didn't fucking want them. So we came up with this thing where where what we did, but we liked Sun Ra, and we liked Ornette Coleman, and yeah. we liked John Coltrane, and right. we were listening to, and I had been listening to that stuff almost as long as I had been listening, well, not as long as I've been listening to blues, but I mean, from, you know, Miles Davis, and, you know, from, from the late 60s out, and especially in the 70s, you know, I was listening to Ornette Coleman, and all, the, you know, free jazz, and, right. and all this stuff, Pharaoh Sanders, and Terry and I were going to jazz clubs and and listening to people listening to pharaoh sanders so we when we came to putting the horn parts together what it came up with what the idea was is these guys were great improvisers even my brother who could barely play was a great improviser nothing stopped him right okay so I'd say, I want a horn part here. And we'd play the music. We'd play like Animal Speaks. Right. And the, the music would be going along, we'd be singing, and I'd stop it. And I'd say, so when I say this line, you know, out across the night skylights, I want a horn part to answer it. And they just looked at me, trying to figure out what the fuck to do. <laughs> and what we ended up doing was, I said, okay, Terry, we're going to do it. This time, you walk up to the mic, and you play what you hear after I say this line. Hmm. And he would play it. And, and it, it, it did what it did. And I said, okay, Tim, you do it. Okay, Jack, you do it. Okay? So that's three different men playing three different ideas about the, at the end of a line. Right. And, it's, and they were soloing in the music in the moment. And right. so their horn parts reflected what was happening around them. So then all of a sudden, Tim would play something, or Terry would go, ba three up and ba Right. And everyone would learn it. Ah, okay. That, We'd that, all look at each other and go, that was pretty cool, and everybody would <laughs> nod their heads. Then they would learn it from him in unison. And then I would play the, the line, and they would respond as a section. And then, after everybody did that, they would work out harmonies within that line and every line was forged in the same manner unless it you know including whole tones and everything else right All the and that's the way it was constructed so when you listen to animal speaks or you listen to i game or any of those songs you name it all of that shit was done in that manner one line at a time one horn part at a time, one horn at a time, one line at a time. And there were places where we would re repeat the sectional, yeah. you know, and there were things like that, but it was all built. Okay, so here's the story. You know, yeah. I put the work in. They put the work in, motherfucker. Right. They put the work in, and they did this music with me, and we worked our asses off.
and we did not fuck around, and we did not cop out, and we'd not use off the rack, off the I call them off the rack ideas. Right. And that's why that music sounds the way it does. And the funny thing is, is I thought, wow, people are going to write like this music. But what I realized was it was too foreign and alien to. Mm. Was it because that those horn sections, like the fact that that's a live record, is insane because it's so tight. Like listening through it and working with a couple bands I've played with that have horn sections and seeing like how long, how much of a feat it is to organize a group like that, and to have them improvise like this, and they almost wrote every lyric with you in a weird way, like the horn response to it, but like right. So that makes it as much as their, your song is their song, in a, at least when you have this like ensemble mentality way. Um, so when you guys played, uh, when you opened for Bob Marley, what, what, how did the crowd react to that? Because that is, that is a whole different vibe, right? Well, okay, I'll put it to you this way. Uh, you know, what if you went to a Mexican restaurant, you looked at the menu and you ordered your food and they brought out Chinese food? Right. Okay. That's what it was. Wow. <laughs> we yeah. they didn't know what the fuck we were doing. Right. They had no fucking idea. Even you know the only people who knew what we were doing were the people that knew who we were. Right. And you know that was that that album was recorded three times. That was the third time. That was the last time. Okay. <laughs> what was the other two? Was it the same show? Different nights? Uh, different nights. Uh, one night um, uh, we played, and uh, we went up, and uh, we were listening to the playback. And uh, I said, uh, "How many channels did they use?" And they said, "Well, this is stereo." Hmm. And you got to remember now. Well, I said, I'm going to wear you're going to wear me out. I'm going to wear myself out. <laughs> but uh, this is the agora, man. They were the kings of Cleveland. Right. The Agora, this is when the this is when David Bowie was playing at the fucking Agora. Right. WMMS radio was making and breaking stars. It was fucking Hollywood. Yeah. And I and and the Agora, because my manager was Jim Mock, who booked the Agora, talked Hank Lacanti into allowing this whack whacked out band from um Kent to come in and record a live album because Jim Mock thought we were going to be the next big thing, you see, because we were so bizarre. Right. He smoked a lot of pot, too, see. <laughs> so we're standing in the studio, and they're playing this thing back for me, and I said, so uh, how many channels did you record? And they said, oh, this is stereo. And I said, so this is it? We can't mix this? And they said, yeah. I said, no, we're done. We're not, no, I won't accept that. Right. So I looked at the these people who were these these big shots, and I said, "No, not interested." Oh. Walked out right. with the band, and they couldn't fucking believe it. And Jim Mock panicked. And he comes in me. He goes, "Why did you do that?" I said, "Because we're gonna mix this. We're gonna have sixteen tracks like everybody fucking else." Right. And it wasn't it was it wasn't arrogant. It was I wanted the best for my people. Right. Well, and all that work put into it. To just get it, not a full mix of it, or not be able to get a full mix of it. So we we went and they gave us another show. They agreed and they gave us another show. But then my bass player ended up in the hospital. 
And they, they called me on the phone. They had this show. They had it was like sold out, and they were yeah. very excited about it. And I just had to cancel the show. And they said, we got a bass player who can who can play. I said, I'm not playing without my bass player. Right. You, you, this, this bass player isn't going to walk up on stage and play this fucking music. He won't know what he's doing. Right. And they thought I was being arrogant. But what I was being was truthful. Right. So they gave us the third show. The third show is, you get, all right, this is it. You get 16 tracks, you walk out, you play for 50 minutes for Bob Marley's audience, and that's your last chance. This is it. Wow. And that's how it went down. That's amazing. Like, the, to be able to pull it off like that. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, this is, that's the way we sounded every night. I have, right. I have proof. That kind of intensity, we did it every time we hit the stage. Every time. And I have proof. Because I have other recordings of those songs that were done at different times that are exactly the same. You can't barely tell them apart. Well, that just pays. A, that just shows how much effort was put into it. The fact that that could have been a given night, any of those songs, and they've sounded that as tight, or sounded as tight as they did. It just it just shows miles. Well, of... the people I work with including Chris and everybody else, were passionate musicians, intelligent, talented people. And I've been very blessed by that. And it was also, you know, like handling nitroglycerin. Because, you know, of, of how people were. And but you know them fucking guys committed themselves to this music, and I've had people commit themselves to my music for fifty years. You'd have to ask them. But I think there's something about there's something I have been told by my musicians that work with me that when they look back at their time in the band, it was the only time in their lives they ever played any kind of music like that. Mm. Where that kind of intensity level, that kind of commitment, you know, and the band's still like that. Yeah. Well, that's why you guys have endured for this long. That's why, you know, success is... Hey, there was a plug. There was a plug. I, did, I, I didn't even mean to plug I caught it like you. that. <laughs> I caught you. But, um, so let's kind of, let's kind of get caught up to that. Um, so after, after, uh, after the live record, there was a studio record, the self-titled record. Which I had trouble, I had trouble finding, but that record kicks. That record's awesome. Uh, there was two two studio records. Right, right. One the, one the, was called no, number uh, number. The second record was called Two. Okay. And it had some really great songs on it. Right. The last one, the last studio record we did was called Among the Wandering, which, which I sell. The second record is uh, I uh, is uh, unavailable. I may put it out eventually as a CD. Okay. And this this guy I know that does vinyl may put it out. Okay. The Smogvale dudes, they've been putting. No, I don't. I don't work with Smogvale. I work with Exit Stencil. Gotcha. Gotcha. I just know they do a bunch of Cleveland stuff. Uh, they do. They do. Um, but yeah, there's a on the on the two. There's this, I, I couldn't find like a track list for it, but there's this, uh, I think it, it might have been called Spiraling, Spiraling Down, and it's got like a reggae feel. Spinning to it. around. Spinning around. Spinning around. 
right how you got how you leveled like it was really cool because listening to everything in the live context right and hearing how tight it is <clears> live <throat> to hear the studio tricks you can do and like add harmony vocal harmony was really fucking yeah. cool and like it, it it goes through to the next record but that tune in particular stuck out i was like it's amazing yeah. to see like the evolution i hate the fucking harmonies on this huh? you do wow I know people do. People like them, but no, I like that was a that was a, the bass player. I wanted harmonies. I just wanted to sing with my brother and I. But he had an idea that he wanted to do, so we all did it, and I went along with it. That was fine. But it sounds like war. Oh, okay, I see what you mean. But I don't know. It's still to me. It sounds like you it's guys. Still, I, I don't like it because it sounds like fucking monks. Right. That's why I don't like it. Oh, like the. But forks. I mean, yeah. But but I mean you know whatever I'm I'm glad to like it you know. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a, there was another tune on there, um, summer. Uh, summer uh, fever. That's probably one of the best songs I've ever written. And the horns, how the horns accent the chord changes that come in. That was no, I don't know, but there's a horn on it. I think you're thinking of something else. What is it? Uh, either oh, oh, a side note. There's nobody's John is on that record. That's a great song. Right. That it was it holds up, so I, I hope you do put it out eventually. Uh, put it out again. Um, it's, yeah, it's just one more thing, you know. We <laughs> still do nobody's John. You should hear it now. What was it? Frightening. <laughs> yeah. Oh fuck yeah, man. That's sick. There's a version of nobody's John on uh, uh, Inward City. Are you familiar with that? Mm -mm. Uh, we have other CDs. We have a CD called Hotwire. Okay. We have a CD called Inward City. I'll send them to me. Send right. your address. All right. We'll do like I I read about those, but I wasn't able to find them. So well, they're on the fucking website. What do you mean? Was it when I clicked? I'll, you can I'll, buy them off the website. <laughs> you, I caught your ass. No, you no, didn't no. look very hard. I did. Was it when you go to the music? It says a uh, 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 like under construction. I don't know. It, it doesn't give you the thing. Oh, the new website? Right, well, maybe. Right. Oh, well, I could be. I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> it, may, it may not be there yet, but you can buy all that shit. Okay. Was it it may not be functioning yet because my, my wonderful wife rebuilt that website and it's incredible. But, right. you know, this, this COVID thing just fucked everything all up. Was it? Have you, I saw you guys did a, a live thing in New Year's. That might have been 2019 even, but did you guys... I mean, we, we did some live streams from from uh, Julie's music room in Akron. Okay, okay. And we did one for the art museum, but it was from Julie's music room in Akron. Was it just the band, no crowd type deal? Yeah. Okay. It, you know, they're, they're they're they were not something I cared for at all. That's weird. But right? I but I but I got but I got I did it for her uh, for Jill Madden, and she's been really excellent, wonderful to the band and and you know it was very alienating and uh the last one we did though i started getting into it i kind of took a quiz show approach i'm it's like you know it's like uh you know i don't care about being on television i don't care about that shit i care about the, the inner relation of the band in the moment when we're playing music and how the audience responds and how that works together and how it becomes one thing that's all I care about. Well, that's the whole thing. That's that's the that's and, the reason we go to that shit. You know what I mean? For that connection. Right. Well, it ain't happening in a live stream. <laughs> well, definitely not. Live streams like, but um, 
a side note. So after those two records, the Golden Palanitos, when did you start working with them? Yes, so the Golden Palominos, Golden Palominos uh, is uh, Anton Fear. Right. Anton Fear worked with David Thomas in Cleveland. He replaced Scott Krauss, I believe, okay. as a drummer. Right. And uh, so it, it all relates to David Thomas. No, um, Anton moved to New York and uh, worked uh, bands uh, in New York, I can't remember the first one. I would say the Pixies, but that's wrong. Something like that. Okay. And then he worked with Lounge Lizards, who right. uh, uh, with a really great horn player. And then he put together Golden Palominos, which was sort of a concept thing. And I got a call from him. I don't know why. Well, he he used to come see the band when he lived in Cleveland, and like what I did. So he wanted to do Animal Speaks on one of his records, and he wanted John Lydon to sing it. So he called me on the phone and wanted to know if I would allow, it would let him do it. Of course, I, I would. And because yeah. and, uh, by then, we didn't even do the song anymore. Most of the stuff on Jimmy Bell, was the audience didn't like it that much. That's Okay, well, that's crazy to think. But anyway, so... But uh, but Jimmy Bell was right. the song. They didn't like Animal Speaks. They didn't like Eye Game. It was too fucking weird. And so I kind of just, by the 80s, I didn't play them anymore. And then all of a sudden, these people were coming up to me going, God, Animal Speaks is amazing, and blah, 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 all because these guys in New York put it on a record, blah, blah, blah. It's all about show business, you know, so... Yeah. But anyway, then after uh, Lydon did that, then he did it with uh, uh, Jack Bruce, and they put out an EP, and then he played in Cleveland, and my band opened, and the first time I ever heard anybody do any of my songs that I didn't play them myself, first time I heard anyone ever do one of my songs was Jack Bruce singing Animal Speaks. That's crazy. That's so Which cool. is an... That that which was an interesting moment, right? And then then this relationship between Anton and I developed, and you know, and so there you have it. Gotcha. So that's you know, it's interesting because you had Johnny Rotten, right? And then Jack Bruce. You have like this this movement of this rock blues, right? Cream, and then you got this this punk rock, and like I know the numbers band's kind of been thrown in this weird mix with like being called a bunch of different types of music with like blues music and then jazz music and punk music. And it, it's interesting that the, the first group to cover here, your music is like kind of like a forerunner in both those realms, like punk and blues rock. Um, right. Right. Did, um, so w let's talk about David Thomas a little bit because that, right. of, um, that, that scene was taken off while you guys were still like taken off as well. Um, we were already there right. and very well established in the culture before uh, New Wave and punk rock. That music knocked us off the chart. We were no longer, we were the old men who played the blues. Mm -hmm. And, but that didn't keep the musicians who played the music from liking us. 
And I remember getting off the stage and this sort of fast talking guy in a big Apple hat. It was it was back then in the seventies. It was uh, Apple hats back then were actually like twice as big as they should have been. So they were really big. And this guy was this loudmouth, fast talking guy. I I liked him though. I, that never bothered me. But he says, I want you to meet somebody. You got to meet somebody. You got to follow me. You got to meet somebody. Like this guy's really wonderful. You really got to. He wants to meet you. So I follow him. I walk over to this giant with curly hair sticking out of his head, and he enters. And he's he. The guy introduces me to Crocus Behemoth, mm. and that's when I met David Thomas. Now David Thomas came down to see the band and admired the band, but the real inroad into David Thomas was Tony Mamone, who was his bass player, and we became very close friends, and still are. And I find it, after talking with David, um, I think I, I think this probably came from seeing you work your band, but when he has a vision, he sticks to it, and it, there's like this uh, this work ethic that is driven through Perubu that seems very, uh, very familiar, or at least it's coming from a source that you guys sound like you had with the numbers band. Yeah. Well, that very well could be. <laughs> but, um, so let's, after, um, after that, working with those guys, you went on tour with them, right? Not, um, uh, um, not Paribu, but, um, Golden Palominos. We went on tour with Paribu, but not as a band. Okay. My, my brother and I worked with David in, um, uh, oh, shit. The, oh, the festival in England? Mirror Man, it was called. Oh okay. Wow. We were so we toured England right. and played the, the Queen Elizabeth Hall and we played the Royal Festival Hall and my band went to, and played the Royal Festival Hall, which is uh, the band played in the Royal Festival Hall, which is like Lincoln's Center in London. Cool. They 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 flew us all the way to London and kept us in hotels for six days to play 50 minutes on a stage in the Royal Festival Hall. And uh, they, it was for a farewell show for the guy who had booked the Royal Festival Hall. Mm. And he was leaving and he wanted to do a show of his favorite bands and David was playing. Uh, so we were invited and the guy from MC5 played. A lot of people played. It was That's called. Uh, was it Wayne Kramer? I don't know. Okay. I don't know anything about him. Gotcha. I met the guy. I don't know him. I don't know who they are. The only thing that was interesting about MC5 was right after I named the band, MC5 came out and they had a number in their name. Right. Okay. Which was interesting, but it's that's that that's nothing like what I did. But it was right. just interesting. It's in the numeric thing coming through in the ether. Well, it was like, well, it's like, you know, <laughs> like there was the Dave Clark five too. Remember right. them? Yeah, yeah. MC five, Dave Clark five, you know, whatever the fuck. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the four freshmen. How about them? The four <laughs> there freshmen. There's a number in their name too. <laughs> Right. It, it isn't all numbers, and it doesn't mean big dick, so... <laughs> well, it's just interesting. It's just, right. you know, I don't fucking care. I mean, one way or the other, yeah. I think MC5 was a remarkable organization, and their music was really amazing music. Did you um, did you ever cross paths with uh, Peter Loeffner? I know Peter very well. Okay. I toured with him uh, when uh, 
when we did the Golden Palominos tour, he was stood next to me for every show. No way. Wow. That guy had talent. He put a, there's this really cool acoustic compilation of his music. And um, I just read this book by Adele Berté. On, uh, uh-huh. Have you read that? No. Oh, it's called Peter and the Wolves. And it's like oh. memoirs of like living with Peter and making music oh, with Peter. Oh, how nice. Wow. No, Peter is a wonderful man. And he's in having some problems. And he kind of disappeared out of my life. And I'm sad about it. But I did go see him when I was in England. And I still want him contact, I have contact with Sid Straw, who is the female vocalist. And, um, but no, I, I ripped Peter. I use one of the, one of Peter's, we were talking one time, it's in red stick on the, on the Endure record. Right. If you listen to red stick, there's a line where I say a pint of the Bumby. I mean, a pint, a pint of the bumpy. Right. And a pack of what I am. And that was something, that was something that, poetry that Peter gave me that was common poetry, beat poetry. So a beatnik would walk into a liquor store and say, give me a pint of the bumpy and a pack of what I am. So it was like hip talk, English hip talk. That, um, he didn't write it. It was it was a vernacular. Right, right. But it came. And I so I I never forgot it. And I put it in the song. And I tri- I give him in the in my lyric book. I tri- attribute it to him. You know. Beautiful. That the, the, endures a great record, man. I liked uh, I liked hearing some of the um, was it the acoustic versions from a Jackleg full band on this record. Right. Was right. It, did, was that kind of the goal? Was it no, some, no, I don't have uh, no. Okay, no, no. The songs I write, I write by myself, and then I bring them to the band. It's just a process. Okay. Some of the songs I don't think I could probably take any one of the songs off the jack leg and do it with the band. Some are going to work better than others. I, I attempted to do two others that I I, I don't think that I think they were. I kind of gave up on them. One of them was. Uh, um, uh, Big Paradise, and the other one was uh, uh, the ballad. Okay. I can't rec- can't can't recall the name of it right now. Mm-hmm. And I did do a version of that that was actually quite good. Big Paradise. I made an error, and I tried to get the band to play it. Yeah, a little bit more like. Too much like my version on the L on the LT, and that was a mistake. And then I never got back to it because I I wrote other songs, and I probably never will. Yeah. Well, I mean, it holds up on Jack Leg. It's cool. It's cool hearing after listening to the Numbers Band, then hearing your solo record. That like that process of, and then the new record, hearing the process of how it goes from you to the band. Yeah, well, that's the way I've always done it. I mean, yeah, it's 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 really cool. I don't like. Um, I've been trying to pick personally pick brains of songwriters for years now, and it's just it's one of those things that everyone has a different different process. Well, there's a, the the difference between me and a lot of other people is I am not a singer songwriter. Okay, mm-hmm. I, I am a composer. Mm. 
when I come to the band, I know what the song will be. Right. And then that is that is where we start. That is the gate that we open. And then everyone goes through that gate with an understanding of what I'm going to require. And then they they make their own contribution to the idea. Yeah, okay. So then And okay. some and sometimes within the process of learning the song, my idea is replaced by a better idea. That is the way it should be done. Right. And I think the one song that I'm the most proud of on that is Blue Collar. Yeah, that's a good song. I think that the introduction and that's in the in the in the actual song itself and the outro they're amazing. I'd never you know and the funny thing was uh David is when I walked in the studio to hear the playback I had never heard Blue Collar before. Oh, so you were hearing that's <laughs> So was it recorded? all the song it's stop and think about it. Stop and think about it. Every song on that record I had never heard before, except for my brothers, because he plays them. Mm. I didn't know what they sounded like. Right. I mean, I had an idea, but when you're playing something, it's not the same as when you listen to it. And I never listen to anything unless I have to. Right. I, now I'm listening to things because they're old. And, and I don't have the same emotional attachment, like fresh. Uh, well, it's just um, uh, I need distant mm. in order, you know. Yeah. No, it makes sense. So was it recording wise? Was it was all pieced apart, right? And then no, it, no, I never. I would never do that. Okay. That was the whole stipulation when we walked in the, the fucking studio. See, right. uh, go ahead. Will you ask a question? No, I was just, just with everything how it is now, right? I don't do that. I hated it. I fucking right. hate it. I hated every record I ever made, except for Jimmy Bell. I didn't. I don't like the process. It doesn't make any fucking sense to me. You know, if you're a studio band, it would make sense. If you're a live band, why would you go in a studio and not play? Yeah, not just the thing you've done the way you. So I'm it. going to. I will give you my lecture. Are you ready? I'm ready. Buckled in. Let's hear it. All right. So uh, they came, These two guys came over. One of them's a musician, and they we were going to do a show and feature this one guy. So we were having a discussion, and they told me that this guy had opened a, was getting ready to open a recording studio in Kent, a really up to date studio right and so came around came around we're going to go in the studio and i and the guy that i was working with was encouraging me and i began to see the potential that the 50-year anniversary was coming up and we could very possibly have a studio album out right but the stipulation was going to be we were going to record live in the studio my definition of what live in the studio is. I've been told we were doing live in the studio several times. It is not live in the studio. And I had long discussions with my bass player and the guy who was going to produce this record, who owned the studio, what I wanted. And the band was skeptical. They didn't think it would work. And, and I didn't blame them. 
uh, I just said we're going to do it this way, and we're going to we're going to record it this way. And if it, if if we, if we spend a day in there, and it's obvious that it's not going to work, you know, I'm not going to be stiff-necked about this. We'll make some compromises and make some changes and do what we need to do to get the record done. This is not about what I want. This is about what I feel needs to be done to capture the band. Because every one of these fuckers I've ever worked with has said, oh, numbers, oh, Jimmy Bell this, Jimmy Bell that. Oh, Jimmy Bell, Jimmy fucking Jimmy Bell. I'm so sick of hearing about it. It's like the band stopped after Jimmy Bell. But what is Jimmy Bell? We walked out on stage, they put mics up, we played, and we walked off the stage. That is the record. Right. There were no overdubs. There was nothing. The mistakes and the errors and all the things that are in that record are in the record. That's it. It is a record of what we did. It's a performance. Mm. So I said, we're going to come in, we're going to set up, and we're going to play. And we're going to record it. Okay, there's going to be no overdubs, no isolation booth. I'm not wearing earphones. You know, I'm not yeah. doing any of this shit. I don't wear earphones when I play. Why would I wear earphones when I'm in when I'm playing in a studio? I don't right. wear earphones. And so they started making these say, sure, yeah, yeah, we knew that. And then when we came to the day and we had a big meeting with the whole band and everybody was in agreement, but the day of the studio when we first went in there, there's a monitor at my feet. There's a baffle to my left. Mm. I said, these things are not going to be here. I said, if I need a monitor, I will let you know. I don't want a baffle. I can't see my brother. The only person that wore earphones was the drummer. Because he couldn't hear the music right. over his instrument because he sits behind it. Yeah, yeah. But we played in an open studio and and sang into dead mics. Mm. I said, why would I want to earphone, wear earphones when I sing? Right. It's a weird, yeah, it's a weird... Um... I said, I don't do that. I'm not going to learn how to do this. Fuck you. I'm not doing it. And, you know, it, you know, and then within... A short time, everybody realized, you know, it was working. Right. Because the volume of the band in the room had to come down to hear me singing. So it brought it back to the, the live setting anyway. Mm. Yes, and, and right. more so because there was no monitors. Right. So they're actually listening. They had to listen to me. And they had to listen to my brother. And we recorded like eight versions of the song and then picked the one we wanted and edited and borrowed from other versions and we did all this editing. Right. It was the editing. And what I realized after it was all over is this fucking studio technique has nothing to do with the artist. It has everything to do with the engineer. Right. Make life easy for the engineer. Well, so it's the sound guy. Who, it's the sound guy of all sound guys at that point. You know what I mean? <laughs> they don't want bleed. Right. They don't want all this. They don't want this. They don't want that. You have to wear earphones. And it's like, 
the last time I was in the studio, they were having me sing into this music and complaining that I wasn't singing it the same way. Mm. Well, it's a different... You need to sing it the same way. I said, I never sing anything the same way. Where's my... I'm not playing my guitar. Oh, you can play your guitar. Yeah, that's weird. We're just not going to plug it in and you're not going to be able to hear it. Well, that's the point. <laughs> and I'm saying, well, I don't need, to, it's, 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 you know, it's not, it's, I'm not jacking off. Yeah. You know, I mean, I played the guitar, the, the guitar and my voice and what I do physically are all the same thing. Lines up, yeah. And it's not this old bullshit cliche about, oh, he can make this guitar, guitar sound like a voice. It's the interplay between the two things. Right. And the improvisation that happens when these two things are happening at the same time and one person is doing it. I never sing the same song twice the same way. Yeah. And so I'm in the fucking studio and I'm going, oh, okay, let's do this. So I start singing the song, right? Right. And then the and the change comes on. I sing the line. And then the line comes later. Because I didn't sing it the same way. So then I got to go, Blah, blah, blah. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Sing the line. Yeah. And that's not a performance. That's karaoke. Right. Right. Well, that's, that's, it's taken away from it. It's really interesting that everyone admires the live bit of it, but doesn't want to do it live. So that's, that's an, that's an interesting conundrum. What is it now? Say that again. It's, it, um, it's an, it's weird that everyone admires the live record. But when it comes time to work with you guys, they don't really want to do it live. That's because it's too much work. Right. And 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 we're back to our, our discussion earlier. No one wants any mistakes on right. their record. Right. It's evil. <laughs> two and two is not six. Right. Right. Well, and on and on we go back to the everybody. See, the, the funny thing about the music industry is... They all consider themselves, or so many consider themselves, liberal because they're in the entertainment business. And they're all very, very conservative. Mm. Musicians, as, as a whole, are very conservative. When a musician gets in the studio, he wants it to be perfect. Right. And he'll play that fucking thing 120 times. Oh, I'm not sure there was a little bit of a buzz on that on that B flat. So I'm not, I want to do it. And I, you just punch me in for that B flat because I don't want that little buzz there. Right. And on and on and on it goes. What does that have to do with the performance? Mm, it alters it. It shifts it to. It's not, it's like not a right. performance. Right. It's fake. Yeah. And it feels fake to me. That's it's yeah no it's 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 interesting how like technology in a way is really great that you can go in there and punch that in and make that work and layer 90 things on a, an orchestra on a track but it also takes away from the authenticity of it and takes away from like how you're saying the actual performance which is what you're well, listening it to depends on, well let me interrupt you it isn't i'm not saying my way is better right and i'm not saying that that way is incorrect it doesn't matter to me i don't care what i do know is that i play live 
Okay. Right. If you if you were down in the Amazon jungle and you were high on some kind of fucking shit they were drinking, and these fucking musicians came out from from behind one of the places or something and came to right. the center and stood by the campfire and played flutes and 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 sang and so on forth, it would be fucking incredible. Right. And then you take them to New York and you put them in a studio and you wonder why it doesn't feel the same. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree with that. I agree with that. And it's like, if you work in the studio and that is your environment, that is your environment. Right. We play live. That's what we do. Why are we in the studio trying to be studio musicians? We don't do that. And the other thing is, is, you know, this, this recording is not for public dissemination. It's pornography compared to music that you hear on the radio. It is raw. It's full of error. You know what I mean? It isn't, it isn't commercial. What is commercial music, David? It's a good question. I'll answer it. Okay. Every song on a CD is a commercial. They're all three minutes long. The the musicians or the company picks the song that will advertise the record. Right. It's three minutes long. Mm. They play it on the radio, and you get a three-minute advertising by RCD. Right. So it all... That... That is commercial. That's what makes it commercial. And it has to be understood. And it has to be acceptable. And it has to be... You know, it has to be easily absorbed by the public. And I don't have a problem with it, but let's call it what it is. Right. And I'll see, why is a, why is a song normally three minutes long? Was it, I would, my initial thought process on that would be like, well, it would be the limitation of what it's recorded on. But what it's recorded on is what's also trying to be sold, right? So, well, you're close. You're very, very close. That's a very good answer. But the actual answer is it, they were three minutes long because that was all they could record on an acetate in 19 fucking 20. <laughs> yeah. Duke Ellington was known to his, his, he was known in the business as the master of the three minute orchestral piece. Mm. He could write incredible pieces of music in three minutes. They lay it on the acetate. You only got three minutes, brother. Yeah. And that's why they're three minutes. It wasn't until the end of the 50s, I think there were long playing records. Remember those? Yeah. It was an, That's where the LP comes from, long playing. They were not 78s. A 78 is three minutes long because that's how right. big the fucking acetate right. is. That's why they're three minutes long. Well, you know, this is how long a fucking go is that? Yeah, it's yeah, it's crazy. Why are songs on the radio still three minutes long? Because they're fucking commercial, David. Right. No, I agree with that, and I think it's it's continued the same way to the the streaming platform now. Whatever, uh, I think it's yeah, the same right. amount of time is length and tune, but now it's uh, it formatted to be perfect. Like to to quantize these beats and to auto. Well, maybe, maybe you could educate me about that, but I don't really know about that. 
I don't know about any of that shit. It's it's the same same shit, different diaper. <laughs> now it's like it's, it's <laughs> what it what is. That's <laughs> good. That's really good. <laughs> but uh, it fits into a, the same type of thing. But now it's going out of a different technology. Now it's going through people's phones and into their headphones and like. Um, but it's still the same thing. It's like marketed to be put in a, a certain category that is now algorithmically fed to whoever likes it. So it's a little more well, fast, but back, back up a minute and, and okay. You say it was marketed, right? So like, okay. So what, what motivates a musician to play music? Well, I would hope it'd be self-expression and conveying. Well, that's that's <laughs> extremely radical. Right. Um, it's a simple way I look at art. Right. I'm an artist. I'm not a musician. Okay. I'm not a musician. I hold musicians in high esteem. I am not a musician. I'm an artist. Okay, and I am a radical artist. And if you look at art as an art form, you can look at it, especially music, for example, because there's a business involved. You should look at that and you go, what can I get from that for myself? Mm. Or you look at and you go, what is it? Mm. I fall on that side. What is it? I have curiosity. As my wife defined me to myself, she said, you are curious. That is why you do what you do. Hmm. I think that's a good end to be into. And, that, and, and, I, and I'm not, and I'm not, believe me, setting myself above anyone. I think people should do as they as they, as, they, as they feel they should do. I just don't want to take shit for being who I am. Right. No, I agree with that. I think I think maybe that intimidates people sometimes is because a lot of people aren't... Like, ultimately, all, no, all knowledge, right? Everything we're taking in is self-knowledge, how we relate to it and how it defines ourself to ourself in a, right. in a way. And I think someone who has a sense of self is intimidating intimidating to someone who doesn't so and and it's an interesting thing because like um someone who is like progressed in a way can either uh enlighten someone or cast a shadow over them and like put them in a space where they want to like see why that how that person got to be who they are and maybe find a way to do that to themselves or they cast it aside and like you know so it's a it's a it's a that's i don't think i think that's Everyone should do that. Everyone should be striving to be themselves and should be curious and should fuck up the form and play the three and you know what I mean and play the one and try try whatever resonates with you. Yeah, <laughs> but just remember, there's no money there. Right, that's true. Not at this point. Yeah. <laughs> and just remember that, you know, and uh, it's been fun talking with you. Yeah, Robert, thank you so much for hanging out with me for this long and for like, like I was saying at the beginning of it, um, when I start to do these interviews, I, I start to listen intently. So if it mm-hmm. sounded like I wasn't saying anything, I'm just, I'm hearing you out. 
And I, I, I <laughs> just, that's, I'm, I'm not, it's not about that for me, man. I know. I just mm. want to let you know. Like I've been, I've been pretty stoked about this, uh, this interview for a while, and have done a fair amount of research. So I've been like excited to talk to you and hear hear your story. Um, so I really appreciate you taking time to do this and reaching out before and going. Oh, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. Awesome. I enjoy talking about the band and 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 music and stuff. It's my life, you know. And uh, I don't know. I think we missed some things, but <laughs> we've been at it for a while. But we got. <laughs> well, we could go on. I mean, we didn't talk about. There's a lot of stuff we didn't talk I know. about. We missed a we missed a chunk of it. Um, but we'll, we could do a part two. That'd be cool, too. Well, you let me know when you want to do that. And maybe I'll send you some of my visual art so yeah. you can see what else I do. Yeah, so. no, that'd be awesome. Because I got, I got plenty of, uh, I got more questions about poetry and, and the writing process. And um, so let's do that. Let's put a pin. Yeah, sure. We'll wrap it up with this one. And uh, we'll, we'll plan another one in a couple weeks. All right. Awesome, awesome. That sounds good to me. 